I drop 40 today. You don't care if I eat. You don't care if I ate. They say you better have a good grade, like a mixed baby hell. They say we going to the tournament. We gonna need you there. Welcome back to another edition of ES250 Intro to African American Studies. And we're continuing the discussion surrounding African Americans in sport. I want to start with the Abdurraki piece. It rained in Ohio on the night Allen Iverson hit Michael Jordan with a crossover. Um, this might be my favorite of the readings that we have from this book all term. It's a piece that I cite. It's a piece that I just love reading. Um, I have a certain affinity for Allen Iverson and the crossover. Uh, so there are a lot of feels that I get just from, from reading this piece. If you look on Canvas, you can actually see a video of the crossover Allen Iverson does on Michael Jordan. Obviously, this is a week where Michael Jordan is very much um, recentered in the topic um, and the world of sports and sports media because of the documentary um, that's being released, you know, slowly but surely as we all sit in anticipation for sports to come back. This is kind of this very welcome collective moment we can share. But really what the piece is pointing to is the cultural differences between Allen Iverson and Michael Jordan, this kind of changing of the guard between what Michael Jordan represented in terms of a very marketable blackness um, in comparison to Allen Iverson, who, as Hanif mentioned, doesn't have the cornrows yet, doesn't have as many tattoos yet, but is definitely on the way to changing the culture. And a lot of the current NBA players today say that they model their game after Allen Iverson more so than Jordan, which is a really, I think, interesting cultural shift that's happening in the league. Before it's all be like Mike, literally commercial, <laughs> where all these little kids are talking about wanting to be like Mike, to kind of this brash bravado that Allen Iverson provides on and off of the court. And this is different, of course, thinking about a, a rookie, Allen Iverson, who very much emulates Michael Jordan, has grown up watching him, and has this landmark moment in his life where he gets to go up against his idol. Hanifa Durkub writes that, quote, who he stood next to on the court before tip-off that night and stared at, like he was watching the sun from a closer distance than anyone had ever seen it before, end quote. It's on page 128. And one of the things about that is, you know, this happens for athletes in certain sports all the time where there is that kind of overlap between the ending of one person's career and the beginning of another's and... There's also something that's really rich and beautiful about sport in terms of how there's all these multiple representations. It's not just this idea of what blackness looks like within basketball. It's about the various ways that there are all these multiple readings of bodies, even within that framework. And we see that at play here. One of the things I really love, my favorite quote in this piece is on page 128 where he writes, the thing about a crossover is that, perhaps more than any other signature dribble move, it relies on trust. A defender willing to trust you and what they understand about you and your willingness to deceive them." End quote. What I love about that is the way that something that's seen as this everyday basketball move, there's definitely levels to it in terms of our understanding of what's considered really epic versus your average kind of crossover. It really depends upon how the defender reacts, right? Do they slide out of their shoes? That's one thing, right? A quick kind of mischievous thing where they get to the basket is another. And then of course, as Neve says, it matters if you make it. 
making it is also part of it, right? You can have a great handle, you can have a great move, but if you don't finish, does it even really matter? He goes back to his Allen Iverson's route to Georgetown and kind of this very kind of troubled history that happens. There's an entire 30 for 30 on it, I should say, or maybe it's just an ESPN film. And then he touches on the practice rant, which again, another one that I've posted to Canvas on the page, where you could actually watch the infamous practice press conference. To put his route to Georgetown, the practice rant, and crossing over Michael Jordan in conversation with one another, the piece is really getting at what he says, uh, witnessing Allen Iverson being like learning a language for your limits and how to push beyond them. If you follow sports, you know that there are these press conferences that become memorable because they're hilarious, someone's really angry, they repeat something that becomes kind of this tagline or motto or thing that's kind of reiterated, and this practice press conference is definitely in that class. What we see pulled out of that that most people forget is the fact that Allen Iverson is mourning the death, the murder of his best friend. I mean, I just put your, put your, I, I mean, I, a lot of y'all, I don't care what you say. You can try to put your feet in my shoes. They won't, they won't never fit because you can't go through what I go through in my life. But just try. Just try to stick your foot in my shoes. Just for one, it ain't even got to be a damn day. Just for one minute. Just for one minute. Stick your foot in my shoes and try to deal with what I go through in my life. My best friend, dead. Dead. And we lost. And this is what I got to go through for the rest of the summer until the season start over again. This is what I got to go through. This is my life in a nutshell. Hanif Abdurraki writes that, quote, toward the end of the rant, an exhausted Iverson leaned forward on the table to share the most jarring and human moment of the afternoon, which also gets lost. During the season, Iverson's best friend, Rassam Langford, was murdered. He hadn't been very open about the loss until this moment, dropped into an hostile press conference about a game he loved but was uncertain about his future in, end quote. That's on page 132. It should also be noted that I believe that this is around the time that the practice press conference comes out um, is when the trial is going on um, for the person accused of murdering his best friend. So there's a lot of energy in both thinking about a body that's been kind of shaped by injury, as Hanif points out, the way that mentally and emotionally he's exhausted after mourning this friend and continuing to figure out what his career and his life look like without his best friend by his side. But really, one of the things that's interesting about the way this piece is written is the way it's as much about Michael Jordan as it is about Allen Iverson. And he describes Michael Jordan as the fact that he, quote, spoke clearly to reporters and flashed a wide smile with perfect teeth. Michael Jordan endorsed good things like healthy cereal and sports drinks. People died over Michael Jordan's shoes, but let's not talk about that part. Michael Jordan was the kind of black person people wouldn't mind living next to, end quote. That's on page 133. So very simply, we see here the contrast between the two, whether we're talking about healthy cereal, a wide smile with perfect teeth, being the kind of black person people wouldn't mind living next to. Super interesting, especially when consider, on the other hand, the kind of endorsements that Allen Iverson had. I put one of my favorite um, probably maybe the only Reebok commercial that I really know. That's really the opposite of something Michael Jordan would be into. Michael Jordan has been quoted as saying he hates hip hop. 
And this is when him, you know, as a player, Michael Jordan was quoted saying he wasn't into hip hop. He didn't get it. And Allen Iverson comes in as someone that's very much grown up and been birthed out of a hip hop culture, right? He, in both the way that he approaches his game, the way he dresses, he very much embodies that. Especially if we think back to the Robin D.G. Kelly, like what it means to grow up with these cultures side by side. And finally, we think about the ways that athletes like Allen Iverson are policed in a particular way. He goes back to the fact that Allen Iverson changes a lot from that crossover in terms of his visual aesthetic, the way he becomes a household name. And Hanifa Durkee says, quote, eventually in 2005, when Allen Iverson grew out cornrows and wore tall and baggy shirts, flat brimmed hats, and covered himself in gold chains at press conferences, David Stern's NBA instituted a dress code. Michael Jordan always dressed well, after all. Players were to wear suits now, to look presentable in front of the media. It was the Iverson rule, end quote. That's on page 134. And I will say, um, I think it's more than the Iverson rule. I'll kind of push back a little bit. Because it does come out of the Pacers-Pistons brawl in 2004. So we could also call it the Ron Artest rule. There's a lot of names we could put onto it. There's definitely a way that Iverson's distinct style, rooted in a hip-hop aesthetic, red is very black, was the antithesis in many ways to the Jordan culture that had made the NBA and Nike so much money. Speaking of money, I want to transition to the Michael Bennett chapter in the NCAA will give you PTSD. And think about what that labor market looks like on the other end. We can think about how the NBA is marketing itself and who is marketable or not marketable within that realm. But I want to think about the NCAA in terms of an incredible um, labor market, incredible labor practice where you have all of these very valuable assets, literally, like people that are helping generate millions of dollars for universities, the NCAA itself, which still maintains a nonprofit status. And yet we have a young labor market of unpaid athletes. It's an economic miracle, truly. In any other realm, we would have all kinds of sanctions, OSHA violations, you name it, going on within the NCAA and its member institutions. And Michael Bennett, an NFL player, is thinking about his experience at Texas A&M as a college athlete and what that means. And he's also situating it, this idea of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And he's saying, you know, he thinks about it in the way many of us do. Someone goes through a sort of trauma, we typically associate that with like soldiers returning from combat zones. We think about that in terms of people that have had some kind of like violence committed against them that's sometimes rooted in domestic violence or sexual trauma. But he's applying it to playing sport, which is, as he even says, it's not really something he had thought about in terms of his own experience. He opens the chapter thinking about Brian Price, 28 years old at the time, had played 20 games in the NFL and was seen in a video running through glass at a store. He thinks about this PTSD, the pain that suffered long after your last hit as, quote, the price we pay for these dreams, end quote. He describes talking to some of his friends that aren't playing anymore on the college or NFL level, and they were talking about depression, feeling like they've let other people down in their lives. They don't have a sense of identity after playing. They're afraid of having CTE. They want to go see a therapist, but they're ashamed, right? They're either someone that is very recognizable or they've been, you know, very much acculturated in a hegemonic masculinity that says, go on the therapist, that's weak, that's not what we do. We're athletes, we're football players. 
And then the last one I think that's interesting, he says, how they wish they had gone into the sport with their eyes wide open. He says, I thought PTSD was something soldiers got in wars, but I learned that it can result from any trauma or pain, not just mental or emotional pain, but as a reaction to physical pain. That's on page 20 and 21. And even having that pain, what I think is unique about thinking about it in terms of football players especially, we've talked a lot about basketball so far, but thinking about that, he talks about pain addiction. So whereas someone might have PTSD from a previous trauma, mentally or physically, he says there's a pain addiction. He talks about this player that that's wife found him running again and again into the garage door because he missed the pain of playing football. What pain addiction means, and we know we think about things like addiction in terms of people that are addicted to painkillers, things that that take away the pain. But how is that complicated by thinking about? pain addiction how does the normalcy of everyday life after you retire and of course we're thinking about for football they're retiring at a very very young age how do you get through the day when you have that addiction to pain the loss of identity says you get stuck in a character and that character being someone that plays a sport and when you don't play the sport then who are you after that and then he talks about the way that people identify with him through their rooting interest, the way that a fan base that hasn't gone through these things, that don't have these various afflictions, can be very much identified with them until they leave the field. And then that support system isn't there. There's not anyone cheering for you or rooting for you at that point. He says, quote, I hear people say, I'm an Aggie, or I'm a Georgia Bulldog, or maybe we say, I'm an Oregon Duck, right? Fine, he says, but are you still a bulldog when it comes to the lives of the people under the helmet? Are you a bulldog when the teenagers you cheered for don't make it in the pros, when they're running through glass just to feel alive? End quote, page 23. And that hits kind of hard. The way that we have these associations, and I'm very guilty of this as well, um, I have this very difficult relationship with the NCAA. I do find that it exploits young people in a way that in any other case, I would be like, we have to lock someone up. We got to figure out something. We got to take this institution down. But there's something about when you're watching these sports, and I'm someone that I love supporting, you know, duck athletes here. I went to the University of Texas at Austin as an undergrad myself. I went to all the games. I was a first year when Texas went to the national championship with Vince Young. I very much have that love for college sports. There's something about seeing these young people excel that is exciting. I love college football. And yet I feel convicted when I read something like that because I can think of the instances of people that needed help, that had different mental health struggles. Some have committed suicide, some kind of overdosed or ran themselves into all kinds of trouble. And I think about the fact that if I claim that sense of I'm a Longhorn, what am I doing to support these folks once they leave? What is my institution? What pressure am I putting on them to support these athletes? And so I think, you know, being here at U of O, another really um, big institution entrenched in athletics, perhaps the institution entrenched in athletics when we think about a lot of elements of it, there's a way that Michael Bennett is calling us to think about who's under the helmet. He thinks about um, calling himself at that time, an athlete student versus the ever popular student athlete name. When he stands up to a professor in class that he feels like isn't acknowledging the full horrors that this country has committed against black, brown, indigenous folks, Chinese workers, Japanese internment camps, he's giving a rundown. 
and there's ways that he isn't seen as being a full student. He's an athlete that's a student on the side. And he talks about how for him it was really important. He wanted to pursue higher education and ends up getting put into agriculture, which A&M is one of the best schools, maybe the best in the country if you want to do something like agriculture. But he saw himself doing sociology, for example. And that's not something that his coaches wanted him to do. He says, quote, we are there for the dream to earn in the future, not to learn in the present, end quote. That's on page 24. And then he thinks about how all of these things that he's doing and pushing for and all these negotiations he's forced to make in his own career and education are then commodified and taken up by people in the athletics department. There's this, this uh, you know, person that's selling $1,200 memberships and selling all these fan letter service situations. I think about what that means in terms of money. I think about what it means in terms of U of O building this brand new jumbotron in the midst of kind of this economic despair that most universities are facing. There's a way that the athletics department may not have a responsibility to alleviate the university's economic woes. Some may feel that they do, but I think that in either case, there's ways that he's talking about the class dynamics, the racial dynamics between himself, other players, and the coaches. He says, quote, they never understood or tried to understand us. They projected their morals and thought processes onto young black men without figuring out who we were. This struck me as a recipe for our continually being misunderstood, misguided, and misjudged. Ingredients for disaster and rebellion, or at the very least, for stress and self-destruction and the creation of the very PTSD that afflicts players when it's all over, end quote. And that's on page 29. He says, you know, maybe one of the you know worst parts of thinking about this is that there was so much power that he feels like he held as a student athlete, as an athlete student, I should say, that he really didn't capitalize on. He uses the University of Missouri's football team as an example of a group that was able to use their power and showed how much power that college athletes really do have. He says, we were both powerless and powerful. Or... The quote I really love on page 32, I was half God, half property, but whichever half they were dealing with, I was never fully human. There's a way that we cheer for, root, exalt these college athletes, but at the same time, there's these rigid structures they're forced to operate within. There's also a way that he is, much like Robin Kelly, thinking about the ways that the image of especially African-American athletes and a larger white fan base at these universities, he says, well, the dynamic is somehow post-racial, that perception, right? He says, ignored is how powerless we are when the pads come off or that we are risking brain injury at an educational institution to entertain, end quote, page 34 and page 35. So he's pointing to the fiction of a post-racial landscape where everyone can come together to root for their university. He says, while we're not thinking about the fact that this educational institution is okaying these young people to go into serious, at this point, pretty much guaranteed brain injury long-term. He calls the NCAA a sensory deprivation project, which I really, really love as a way to think about. I don't know if anyone has ever been in one of those sensory deprivation tanks. But what it does is it, it attunes you to things that are so tiny that you kind of don't get big picture, right? You're just kind of living in every second. Much of the sensory that he's saying he's missing is also a connection when you move from being in a very rural 
area to an urban area, when you move from being in an area that's majority African-American to a majority white situation, a predominantly white institution, like many of these universities, he's talking about the culture shock. And that culture shock and that sensory deprivation from folks that may look like you, things that feel familiar to home, it takes you out of your element to the point that you do get that rigid kind of thinking about like that kind of training that in many ways is able to brainwash you because you're taken away from every kind of comfort. He says, quote, I had teammates who wanted to go home because they'd come from an all black area into these supremely white universities and they were in pain every day, physical and psychological pain. They tried to find their place in a cultural new world and anyone who thinks that's easy has never had to do it. The team is no refuge because the coach wants you to act in a certain way and the school wants you to be a certain way and for too many, it's hard to succumb to it. And that's on page 30 and 31. So that, that conformity that he's saying is causing part of this pain is something that, you know, for many of us that aren't playing college sports or have not had that experience, it's really difficult. Because if even if you've been a high school athlete, you're at home, you're surrounded by people that know you, you're surrounded by a community that you've known, and so there's significantly less of it. There's obviously people that go to boarding schools or are bused to different schools that have a different experience. But for many of us, playing a high school sport is really about being supported and uplifted in your community. And then you get a lot of the benefits that perhaps get even bigger in the NCAA, but you don't have the downside of acclimating to a completely new educational and social environment. I want to think about the Amira Rose Davis piece. 60 years ago, she refused to stand for the anthem. And I want to connect that to the idea that Bennett is really pushing in terms of, you know, athletes are both powerful and powerless. There's all of these corporate institutions that are vying for their attention, their conformity, their bodies. There's ways that the actual sports institutions are telling them what to do. And there's also a way that they have a platform that is unlike many others for African-Americans specifically in this country. Amira Rose Davis focuses on black women that have been representing the United States, tracing a 60-year lineage between Rose Robinson, far before Colin Kaepernick refused to stand for the anthem. Even as she competed in the Pan American Games, she called it bloated displays of American greatness and felt that she would be used as a tool that says, you know what, there's not racism. You know what, everything you've heard about what's going on in the 50s and 60s, that's not a thing. Look, we have Rose, we can use her. And so she realized that much of these tours of much of the various athletic campaigns that were global were about exalting Team USA as this beacon um, of post-racial enlightenment. And this is in the 50s and 60s. And then we have Gwen Berry, who at the most recent Pan American Games, raised her fist on the podium, a la Tommy Smith and John Carlos, right? If we think about the 1960 Olympics, a very iconic photo, right? And she says it's because America can do better. She feels like, you know, part of it is that she believes in a country and thinks that there's more this country can do in terms of equity, inclusion, and she says part of her reason for making that stand, putting her fist up during the anthem when she's on the podium at the Pan American Games, she says that, quote, athletes are human. Just because we decide to dedicate our lives to a sport doesn't mean we don't have an opinion about world issues. And in many ways, what Amira Rose Davis is trying to do here is disrupt this history that is so male-centric in terms of athlete protest. 
She places Rose Robinson, Gwen Berry, various WNBA teams that protested before Colin Kaepernick in 2016. And she's highlighting what's called right now this fourth wave of athletic activism. She starts it back in 2012 with the Miami Heat where they wore hoodies um, in memory of Trayvon Martin, the Hands Up Don't Shoot Rams in St. Louis at the time, now obviously in Los Angeles, and the I Can't Breathe shirts worn by NBA players in shoot-arounds after the killing of Eric Gardner. She says it's easy to draw parallels from Robinson's anthem protest to Kaepernick's, but actually it's better to think about the role women have had within sport and social change. So one of the questions I want to leave you with is thinking about how the invisibility of women in sport and the precarity of their labor in particular, the fact they make less, there are fewer opportunities. How can we acknowledge that invisibility in terms of what we see in terms of media coverage and acknowledge the risks they take by speaking out? Until next week. Come on in.